the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And that was originally was going to be, I was going to, my goal was to preach on that whole passage. But as I looked at it, and as I began to really dissect the text, it occurred to me it would be better to break it up into two sermons. Verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mercy, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our hearts. We are all naked before you. You know our motives and intentions. You know our sinfulness. You know, O Lord, the dark recesses of the heart. And so we come to you open, O Lord, asking you to expose the darkness. May your light shine into us. I pray that you bring about newness of life today. I pray that you would bring about a sense of restoration, renewal, revival, that our hearts would be fixed on you, Jesus. We need you. We need you in this service. We need you in our lives. We need you to superintend the ministry of the word, for without you, it's all useless. Lord, I am mindful as I look within and look without and look amongst us how much the flesh and the world and Satan bombard us as your people. We need you, O Lord, to uphold us. Father, we want to leave here today different from when we came in. Open the eyes of our heart. Help us to behold wondrous things from your word. Grant me, O Lord, as your servant, the power, the ability to unpack your word, to minister your word. Give me unction, Holy Spirit, for your name's sake. Amen. Here we are in our little church here in Hartsdale. We're very mindful of the things that are important at Grace and Truth. I'm sorry. We're very mindful of the things that happen here at Grace and Truth and that are concerning to us at Grace and Truth Church. 
Even more so, we may be aware of the matters that concern us in churches in the area, churches in the country. But there are many churches throughout the world, as Pastor Paul was speaking about earlier when he opened up churches in Nigeria, churches in North Korea. Christians there are suffering greatly. They're the two hardest places in the world to be a Christian. We've never met those people. We don't know those people. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united to them in faith. Pastor Paul is a great example because he prays for these people every day. Paul never met them. He never spoke to them. He just reads about them in the the journals he gets from Voice of Martyrs. And so this brings to our attention, why do we as Christians concern ourselves and pray for people we never met or or have no interaction with or don't see? How could we do such a thing? There there is something more, more, there's a stronger bond than just what we could see and touch. It's the bond, it's the union we have with Christ through faith that joins us in faith to other Christians around the world. It's the reason why when you meet Christians that you never met in your whole life, you feel like you've known them for 20 years. There's something to be said about this. And today in our message, we see about Paul's prayer for these Christians in Colossae, people who he's never met, he's never seen face to face, he's never stepped foot in his church, but he has great concern for these people. What is he concerned about? Are they sick and suffering? Are they, maybe they're spiritually weak? Or is he concerned about the needs of the community? What's his concern? The supreme concern is that they would know Christ. And that's the supreme concern of every church and should be the concern of every church. You see, what really should concern us about all these churches, although there are many that suffer, is do they know Christ? I admire the ministries of men like Richard Gosswiller and Pastor Paul who uh, find it a great desire and burden to equip pastors in foreign countries that don't have the accesses to resources that we do here in America. Pastors go to seminary and get first-rate educations. They actually come out of seminary overeducated. But in these countries, you have men who have the call to ministry and have absolutely no resources And I'm not sure that a lot of churches understand the gospel the way they ought to. I'm not sure that a lot of these believers, as much as they love the Lord and follow the Lord with all their hearts, truly have a full, mature understanding of who Christ is and what that means in life. That's what's important. You see, if you don't have Christ right, you get everything else wrong. And I find that in church life, we tend to emphasize and look at all the things that are frivolous and do not matter. We emphasize and look at the form of worship. How we come in, how do we conduct a worship service? Who conducts a worship service? Who's preaching? How do they preach? How long did they go? We focus so much on the form, the format. We focus on all of the externals. But what really matters is, is Christ central in a ministry? That's really all that counts in the end of the day how much we exalt Christ. I think in the end of the day, when we all stand before God on Judgment Day, all the churches that are popular and exciting or or have great talented people, that's not going to matter. The question is, was Christ exalted? Was he taught? Did people have a mission to fully make Christ known in the church? 
Well, this was Paul's desire. It was his heart. In today's message, we want to look at this supreme concern of Paul as he agonizes in prayer for the church of Colossae. And so what we have here is not only uh, Paul describing his prayer for the Colossians, but a model for prayer for us. The first thing I want us to do is look in verse 1 to describe what kind of Paul ha- what kind of prayer Paul has for the church. In verse 1, he says, "I want you to know," speaking to the Colossians, "I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face." Paul wants them to be aware, he wants them to know how much of a struggle he has for them. And the first thing we want to look at today is that in our prayer life for other Christians, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. Now, I want you to look because earlier in verse 29, which is the verse right before this, he summarizes his ministry by saying, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. As I said last time, and in this text, the word struggle, its original Greek form is agonizomai. It is a Greek word which means to agonize. Now, I want to give you a little background to the word, because the word agonizomai, in its original meaning, was used in the Greek language to describe the Olympic Games. It was specifically used to describe the Olympic Games of an Olympic wrestler or boxer. So if you think of two men grappling and wrestling with each other uh, to see who would have supremacy over the other, that is where the word agonize or agonizomai comes from. It's, it's wrestling, it's a struggle. And when we think of that word, we could think of Jacob when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and the Lord touched his hip socket and crippled him. It's the kind of wrestling and struggle that's not something physical here that Paul is describing But the struggle is a spiritual struggle. It's an internal struggle. It's an emotional struggle. Paul's ministry in general was one of a great wrestle and struggle. But this kind of struggle here is more specific. It is not general. He said his struggle is for the Colossians. It is for the Laodicean church. It's for the believers in the Lycan Valley in whom he is writing this letter to. And so the question is, what is he wrestling with? What is he struggling with? Because although he says he's struggling and wrestling, he doesn't specify what. In order to understand that, you look at chapter 4, verse 12. You turn one page over, and you'll see here where he describes Epaphras, who is the pastor of the Colossian church. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so what I think we're seeing here is that Epaphras, who is with Paul in prison and who brought the information of what was going on in the Colossian church to Paul, which was the occasion for him to write this letter, is struggling in prayer with Paul for the maturity of the Colossian church. That's the struggle. That's the wrestling. That's the battle Paul is having here. Now, it is a battle in many ways. I want you to think about this for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's praying for these people. As I said, he's never 
met them. Have you ever tried praying for people that you've never met? It's not easy. It's hard because you don't have an emotional attachment for them. You've, you've never conversed with them. You've never engaged with them. You, you can't put a voice or even a face to them. And that's exactly the circumstances what Paul was in. But the reason why Paul could have such a struggle, not just in, in a sense of not knowing them, but it was, it was more of wrestling against his flesh because his spirit, moreover, was compelling him to pray for them. The reason why Paul could pray for these people is not because he wanted to. It's because the Spirit of God was so filled in Paul. This is a man so controlled, so constrained by the Spirit of Christ that his concerns were the concerns of God. His concerns were not about himself or his own life. His concerns were with the people of God. This was a man who was consumed with concern for the churches. And uh, 2 Corinthians 11, when he lists all the trials and tribulations he suffers, he said, on top of that is my daily burden for the churches. This is a man who, in his apostolic ministry, didn't just fulfill the role, but he cared deeply, not only for those whom he touched directly, but even those whom his ministry touched indirectly. Now remember, Paul is responsible as the apostle to the Gentiles. This was his calling to bring the gospel to those who never heard it. And although the Colossian church, he never stepped foot in there, he indirectly had a big impact on them through the church of Ephesus. And so how do you think he feels when he knows the church may be going down the tubes? The false teachers have come in, have infiltrated, have deceived, have deluded, and have caused the Christians there to waver in their faith. He was deeply concerned. He saw the current of concern of Epaphras. And as a result, with Epaphras, he struggled in prayer for their maturity, for their assurance. But I got to tell you something. Prayer is a struggle, and anyone who has prayed in their Christian walk and prayed earnestly and fervently knows that prayer can be a struggle. It is wrestling sometimes. And that is because there are many opposing forces that will seek to take us away from prayer. How many times have you got on your knees to pray and your stomach grumbles? Or you get a craving for a piece of chocolate cake. Where did that come from? Or all of a sudden it comes into your mind that, your favorite show is on TV, or, oh, I need to check my email, and you're in the middle of prayer. Why are these things coming into your head? Because that's the flesh. That's the struggle, the wrestling between the spirit and the flesh. Prayer is a struggle. It's a struggle that, that sometimes you may get on your knees and feel like it's a waste of time. Lord, I've prayed this so many times. What's the use of praying? There's a struggle there. There's a struggle maybe with the weakness and lethargy that we have. We, we had a long day and we're weary or we wake up early to pray and we just can't do it. But sometimes it could be that the struggle we have is not with ourselves or the world. It could be with God himself. That could be the real agony. Consider David Brainerd. He was missionary to the American Indians, colonial America, and he lived for a season with Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher from Massachusetts. Here's a quote from his diary on wrestling with God in prayer. The entry for Monday, April 19, 742, reads in part, God enabled me to so agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade and the wind cool, 
My soul was drawn out very much for the world, and I grasped for multitudes of souls. Next day, he goes on to write, I think my soul was never so drawn out in intercession for others it has been this night. I had a most fervent wrestle with the Lord tonight for my enemies. Again, he writes, I was enabled to cry to God with a childlike spirit and to continue instant in prayer for some time. Was much enlarged in the sweet duty of intercession. Was enabled to remember great numbers of dear friends and precious souls, as well as Christ's ministers. Continued in this frame, afraid of every idle thought till I dropped asleep. Sometimes we wrestle and agonize in our prayer with God himself. James H. Thornwell once wrote this, we pray, but what is there of agony in our prayers? Who wrestles with God? Whose soul is burdened with the weight of a perishing world? Who takes an hour from his sleep or foregoes a single meal in order that he may plead the cause of millions upon millions that do not know God? And are such prayer sacrifices, are they mere breath? And can there be any wonder that mere breath should not move the Lord of hosts? You may feel sometimes that our prayers are not changing anything. But I think this is where the agony comes in prayer. The agony comes in prayer is that when we pray, it is not our prayers to bend the will of God to ours, but rather prayer is designed to bend our will to God's. And that's where the agony comes in. When we think of agonizing prayer, what do you think of? Well, the first thing that comes to your mind is the agony in the garden. For that's the Lord, the night before he was crucified, prayed so intensely that he sweat droplets of blood, which is a real physical condition when you're under tremendous strain and anxiety. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That was his prayer. But notice what he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the agony in prayer sometimes. The agony is bringing our request to God, praying for certain people, praying for certain things. And and when we don't see the results that we want or hear the answers that we want, being content to say, not my will, but your will to be done. That's not always easy. And that's the struggle of prayer. That's the wrestling of prayer. And Paul is agonizing. He's struggling in prayer for this Colossian church. All right, so what is the focus of his prayer? What is he praying for? There are three crucial points here to understand what Paul is praying for. The main goal, the thrust of what he's praying for can be found in in verse 2. Part B, it says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's the thrust. That's the main goal. And that's a long run-on phrase. An English teacher would mark that up. You see that a lot in Pauline writing. And we'll break that down. But The controlling clauses of that are found in the first two requests, verse 2a, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. The three go together. You're not going to grow in knowledge and understanding of who Christ is apart from being knit together in love and from being strengthened in the Spirit. They all go hand in hand. So let me break each one down. The first is that their hearts may be encouraged, 
Now, when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the center of man's being, the inner man. It, it, is, it is, in the scripture, when we talk about the heart, the actual word is not heart, the actual word is liver. But it, it, it refers not so much to the physical organ, but to the inward person, the, the center of existence. It's, it's where we think, it's where we feel, it's, it's, it's not separated, our emotions and our thinking, but it's all one. It's who we are, our inner person. That's why it says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your hearts with all diligence because from it flows the issues of life. The heart of man, in its natural condition, the scripture tells us is desperately wicked and sick above all things. That means in our natural conditions, original sin has so depraved our human hearts that from it flow all kinds of evil thoughts and adulteries and robberies and thefts and murder. The intentions of the heart are evil all the time. And so God has to give us a new heart. Isn't that right? We need a new heart. If we're going to serve God and understand who Christ is, you need a new heart. And that's the kind of thing. We need heart surgery. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this time in Ezekiel 36, 26, when he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what we call in Christianity the new birth, being born again, being converted. You cannot be a Christian unless you're born again. You can go to church and be very religious and you can practice religion, but unless you're born again, you're not saved. You're still dead in your sins and trespasses. Your heart is still darkened and bent on the things of the world. We need conversion, we need a new heart. A heart that beats for God, a heart that sees things the way God sees it, that feels things the way God feels it, that a heart that is crafted by God himself. And that's what makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. And once we have a new heart, the control center at times can become very weary. It could become discouraged. It could be in despair. It could be weak. The church in Colossae was suffering from a lot of discouragement from the negativity of false teachers there promoting their human philosophies. And so Paul's praying, he's agonizing in prayer for encouragement for their hearts. The word encouragement literally means to strengthen. That's what the term literally means in the Greek parakletos. It means to strengthen or to comfort. And when when we say comfort, it means to make strong with, to comforte. It's the idea of, of building someone up and strengthening them. These Christians were weak, They've been bombarded by the ungodly forces of false teachers and their hearts needed to be strengthened with what spiritual strength? They needed the strength from God. In a parallel prayer, which we'll refer to a couple of times, in Ephesians 3.16, when Paul prays for the church of Ephesus, he prays that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being basically saying the same thing in a different way. We need strength in our inner being from the Holy Spirit, spiritual strength. The only way that can happen is when we're filled with the Spirit, when the Spirit controls our lives. You see, there are many times where the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And we must pray at those times, just as the uh, Lord was agonizing in the garden, his disciples were falling asleep. There are many times where we are in our slumber spiritually, We need to pray for our strength. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray for other believers. Pray for me. I ask you, pray for me. If 
Bob's and Sarah, because there are many times my week is very, my heart is very weak. I feel a little weak today. We need strength from God, spiritual strength. Number two, he prays that they would be knit together in love. The word knit means to be welded, to be bonded, to be united together. And this word is, is very strong here, and it, and it and has the idea of the connotation of unity. And what Paul is praying is that the church would be united in the gospel, that they would be united in their love for one another. You see, one thing Satan knows very well, if a church is divided, if there are factions within a church, if there are divisions, if there are squabbles, if there are grievances within the church, Satan will exploit that to the umpteenth degree. I'll give you, I'll give you this idea is that when you see that kind of division in the church, it opens the door for the devil to come in and wreak havoc. Brotherly love brings unity within the church. It's the kind of love that puts others in front of ourselves. It's not the spirit that seeks to uh, outdo one another in showing honor to ourselves, but outdo one another showing honor to the other person. Says in Romans chapter 12. In Ephesians 3:17, in the parallel prayer, Paul says the church would be rooted and grounded in love. In Colossians 3:14, when Paul is giving the church the imperatives in living out the gospel, he says, Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's how we'll be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's how a church stays strong and resists the pressures of the world and the tribulations that come upon us when we stick together. Several years ago, I met with um, a friend of mine. He's a, a pastor, and he's, he's an Arminian. And he and I get together on occasion, and we'll have coffee, and we talk, and, and we have a good friendship. And it was something interesting we said to each other at one point, you know, although we're quite different in our theology, you know, we're one in Christ, you know why? Because here, and we, we were discussing this, how like, you go in the deep south, like the Bible Belt, Arminian Calvinists are at each other's throats. They want to kill each other. It's like a war. We're like, we're in New York. We're like a minority of a minority of a minority. We're like so small Christians in this state. If we don't stick together, oh my goodness, we already got the majority of people that hate us. We got to stick together. Especially in the world we live in today, the hostility against Christianity today is probably more intense than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. When I first got saved, I remember in the 90s, I would go out and evangelize and share the gospel with people, and there was openness. People would, of course, you always had your people that would be you know, nasty, but I've, I've always had great success in my early years as a Christian sharing the gospel. Today, people, there's just a, a rank anger towards Christians today. We have to stick together. It's the one ingredient the church cannot do without. Without love, we're nothing more than a bunch of religious zealots. In order to live a life that's pleasing to God and to withstand the attacks of Satan, we must be united in love. Thirdly, 
is to have this complete understanding of Christ that Paul speaks about. He talks about to reach all the riches of the full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. That's a long sentence, and it's very complex and nuanced. When you break down the original Greek, it could be difficult and complicated to understand. And I think to, to better phrase it, we can look at another way. And, and, and one person puts it this way, and it's taken from the NIV, that you may have the full riches of a complete understanding and knowledge of the mystery of God. That you may have the full riches of a complete understanding. In other words, there's, there's a wealth, there's a, there's a treasure that comes with having a complete understanding and knowledge of the mystery of God, which we already know is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Right? The mystery the mystery's already been solved for us two chapters ago. We know that the mystery of God is revealed, that Christ came into this world to save all mankind, not just Jews, but Gentiles, and that Christ dwelling in us, he's the hope of glory. This is the mystery of God now revealed, and it's been revealed for 2,000 years now, so there's nothing new. But having a greater depth and complete understanding and knowledge of this, which is really saying to have a full, rich understanding of the gospel. We have just begun to scratch the surface of the gospel. You think you've heard it all before, but every time you hear it, it's something new. It's something fresh. It exposes a different part of our own frailty, of our own sin, of our own weakness. And whenever we hear the gospel in its various uh, uh, forms and its various dimensions, it brings about life and it brings about revival and renewal, which is why Paul is praying this. Paul's praying that the greater the church has of a knowledge of Christ, the greater they have of a knowledge of the gospel, the less likely they are to be persuaded, distracted, and deceived by false teachers. So yes, the church must grow in love and it must grow in knowledge. A few nights ago in Bible study we were debating, is there this tension between love and knowledge? No, there's no tension You cannot have the knowledge without the love, and you can't have the love without the knowledge. The two go hand in hand. A true knowledge and understanding of who Christ is is going to spur you on to greater love and forgiveness to one another. And the more love and forgiveness you have for one another, the greater grasp and understanding you'll have of the gospel. The two go hand in hand. And if one is devoid of the other, it leads into two extremes. Someone who's all love and no knowledge? Well, what do you have there? You have a bunch of fluffy Christians who feel good and have tingling up their spine and, you know, the social gospel. We're going to help everybody in the world but have no clue what the gospel even means. And then you have the people that are all gospel and all knowledge and all knowledge and all knowledge, and they're always fighting and arguing and bickering with everybody. And you look at them and you say, "I I don't want nothing to do with their religion. The two go hand in hand. But here's the bigger thing here I want you to see. It says, Paul expands upon Christ here. First, we saw Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's the indwelling presence of God in our human tabernacles. But in verse 3, there's a different dimension here we see of who Christ is and the revelation of who Christ is in verse 3. And it says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to think about that for a minute. Let that, let that marinate in your mind. In whom are hidden all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. Now, to the Hebrew person, this is this is very, you know, in, in you know, it, it just lights up the mind because it reflects upon the Jewish tradition of wisdom literature and the 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 Jewish uh, pursuit of wisdom and knowledge in the fear of God. We just did a Bible study just a couple of weeks ago with the men, and the and the passage that we study is actually very relevant because you could see it come out in this text. Look in your Bibles in Proverbs chapter 2 for a moment. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Proverbs. Listen to this. My son, verse 1, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for his hidden treasures, notice the emphasis there on hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And he is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Do you not see that Christ fulfills this? In him are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. And notice it says here in verse 4, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, we have barely begun to plumb the depths of the treasures of the vastness of Christ's wisdom and knowledge. Think of it as an infinite resource. This, This valuable treasure that's been hidden and it's now disclosed. Imagine if you we're on a journey. You got a treasure map to go to Mexico and find some ancient Aztecian treasure, and and you you discovered that hidden treasure. What would you do? Oh, you would. First of all, you wouldn't tell no one about it, right? <laughs> this is a little bit different. You want to tell everyone about it, but but you would you would you would protect it. You would you would delight in it. You would you would make sure that nothing happened to it. The treasures that we have of the knowledge and wisdom of God. It's all bound up in the fear of the Lord, and Christ is the one in whom all the knowledge and wisdom of God is found. And you know what that means? It means that you cannot find true knowledge and true wisdom. And when I talk about knowledge and wisdom, I'm not talking about abstract knowledge. You can go to college and learn a lot about many subjects. You can be a doctor. That's a different kind of knowledge. You want to learn computer science. It's a different kind of knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge of life. What our purpose is. What the meaning is. What, who, who are we? Who is God? And what is it all about? You, if you want to know anything about that, Christ is the answer. You're not going to find any answers outside of Christ. It doesn't matter how spirit... Right now, we hear a lot of people say, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I'm trying to find the transcendent. Get out of here. That's all nonsense. That's all new age nonsense. And, and you're going to find nothing but lies and darkness and Satan will corrupt you. 
Anything you want to know about the truth of life, your existence in eternity can be found in Christ. You want to know more about life? Study Christ. You want more wisdom to know how to apply this knowledge to your life? How to, how to live a life that conforms with the knowledge you know? Study Christ. Everything is found in Christ. Oh, if we only understood. Sam Storms says this, and I quote, True knowledge of the ultimate meaning of human existence is found only in the light of the identity and redemptive accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Insight into the character of God, his relationship with his creation, is found only by looking to the person and work of Jesus. The nature and eternal destiny of the human soul, the grounds on which we differentiate between good and evil, the wisdom of God's ways in the world, as well as the pathway of reconciliation with him, are all tethered to Christ. If we know him, we know it all. Oh, man. We can really get into the depths of this, and it's, a, it's, it's something that we must ponder deeply. We must plunder those riches, protect those riches from defilement, to penetrate those mysteries. And ultimately, as we recognize its true value and worth, that we treasure it above all else in this life. There's nothing else that's more important. And right now, you may not see that because there's other things that are vying for your value and attention. There may be other things you think are more important. But I tell you, when the day comes when you're on your deathbed and your heart is failing or the cancer's overcoming your body, you'll realize, oh, how valuable that was. But I was too busy. I was too distracted and too stupid and blind to realize it. May that not be the case. Finally, we know that what Paul prayed for The purpose and the goal of his prayer is laid out in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's that simple. The word plausible argument there can be translated persuasive arguments. But I think another way it was this this word was translated, we read in Plato, um, who wrote Plato's Republic for the Roman Empire, used this word in translated popular speech, popular speech. I think that this has a negative connotation and could also be used as beguiling speech. There are a lot of people who know how to talk good talks. They tell people what they want to hear. People can, you know, we call it demagoguery when you fuel people and feed people what they want to hear. Politicians are great at it, right? That's their... That's their art form. That's what their business is. But that filters into the religious world too. There's a lot of demagogues in the religious world. There's a lot of people who know how to capture people's emotions and and to mislead them and to direct them. They tell them the things that'll stir them up and be very persuasive and be very plausible. You know, sometimes you can listen to someone telling you a lie and it sounds really good. It sounds true. A good public speaker, a good orator can make the lie sound true. That's what deception is, by the way. Satan wouldn't be called a deceiver if he wasn't any good at it. A deceiver always makes the lie sound true. And a deceiver wouldn't be deceptive if he wouldn't, didn't fool people. 
The deceiver, the more crafty the deceiver is, the more the people they fool. And you see, there's only one way to guard against being fooled. And that's to know the real thing. You know, if you want to know a counterfeit $100 bill, it's a lot harder to do now than it was years ago. But you got to know the real thing. Right? Now they have these blue light machines or whatever, the black light machines. You slip the bill under and you'll know right away if it's real or fake. You put a little mark on it. But the only way we could discern truth from error is the more we know who the very source of truth is, who truth is itself, and that's Jesus. The greater of an understanding you have of Christ, the greater you have an understanding of who Christ is and the depths of the knowledge and wisdom of who he is, the more resistant and resilient you'll be to the lies and the persuasive arguments and the deceptive speech of godless false teachers. And I tell you, I can't, (laughs) it's sad because I've seen many good Christians be deceived by either false doctrine, by worldly philosophies, by politicians, and it's because we're not grounded in Christ. You know what deceives us in the end of the day? Our emotions. The heart is deceitful above all things. I quoted that in the very beginning. Lots of times people believe lies that they hear because they want to believe a lie. Because the lie feeds your emotions. And when you want to believe something to be true, even if it's not, it's not hard to fool you. See, these people, a lot of these false teachers, they're masters. Masters of manipulating human emotions and thinking. It's really a game. Very clever. They know exactly what they're doing. We must be resilient. The people who drank the Kool-Aid, who followed Jim Jones off the cliff, they weren't grounded in Christ. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of person you'll be if you're not really grounded in truth. You may not follow a Jim Jones and drink the Kool-Aid, but you'll follow someone off the cliff and you'll perish for it. And so Paul prays and he agonizes. So with Epaphras, they're praying for that maturity that they would not be deluded, that they would not be distra- distracted, and that they would not fall away from God. Notice what it says in Ephesians 4:11 through 14. Paul says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Listen, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the same language, just in a different way. To mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Let me conclude. Paul agonized greatly in prayer. His primary concern was for the maturity of the Colossian church, that they would be unmovable, that they'd be steadfast against all the wiles of Satan 
and his emissaries who would seek to dislodge their footing in Christ. His desire was to see the church united in love and growing in knowledge, encouraged and strengthened by the Spirit. And that's the prayer we need to pray for each other. I challenge each and every one of you to pray this prayer for each and every member of Grace and Truth Church and attending, everyone who's here, pray for each other, especially as we go into an endeavor with a new building we're going into in White Plains. This is the kind of prayer we need to pray. If these things are not developing, if we're not growing in love and we're not growing in knowledge and understanding of Christ and his work, we cannot, we cannot succeed. So let us pray to this end, and not just for ourselves, but let us pray for those who we don't see, those who we don't know. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Spain. Pray for them as they face challenges in their own context. For our brothers and sisters who you have no idea who they are, who Paul spoke about in North Korea and Nigeria, agonize for them in prayer. Pray for the people in your life that don't know Jesus. And even though it seems you've prayed for them a hundred times and they're not saved and it just seems like God's not answering your prayer, continue to struggle in prayer. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Hold on tight. And remember at the end of the day, let us always pray, let thy will be done. Father in heaven, oh, indeed, we're challenged today. Challenged to look at how we pray and Oh, Lord, more importantly, looking at ourselves, are we truly living up to this gospel call? Is our life really compatible and consistent with what the gospel teaches? Do we truly understand the depths of the mystery of the gospel? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would indeed enlarge our hearts, expand our minds, strengthen us from within, Oh, knit us together in love. I pray that you'd strip away all the things that prevent us from growing in unity. May we be more close than ever before. May the bond of love be the the tie that binds us together in our desire, our shared desire to grow more in knowledge of you. We pray, Father God, for those who don't know you, those in our midst, our family members, our friends. Oh, so many here in Hartsdale and in White Plains, Father God. The countless souls who live in this area who are in rebellion against you or are content in their sinfulness and their pride and smugness. Oh God, we pray that, that you would open a door for the gospel in this area. We pray even now as we go into this venture in White Plains, We pray for those visitors who come in the near future, that they would hear the word and that that you would move upon them, that you'd bring conversions, Father, that you'd bring people to know you and to, to delight in you and to love you. We pray, Father God, that you would bring revival in this area. It may seem as if New York is finished, O Lord, as if we have lost our way, that there's no gospel light left in this area. Oh, but Lord, Elijah said, there are none left but me. You reminded him there were 7,000 who had yet not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, we pray, Father, that the remnant that still exists in this area and all around the country and around the world would hear your word and believe in you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Amen.